from PRX. Hi, this is Kurt Anderson, the host of Studio 360. We wrapped up production of Studio 360 in 2020, but since then, I've been working on a brand new podcast. It's called Nixon at War, and it's a seven-episode series that we've just finished. Which is why, thanks to my old Studio 360 colleagues at PRX, the first episode has popped up right here. If you're interested in modern history, especially in America's big cultural and political turning point of the late 1960s and 70s, or if you're a fan of documentaries that play like noir drama, Nixon at War is for you. It's an inside chronicle of a presidency gone horribly wrong, how Richard Nixon extended the war in Southeast Asia for his own political purposes, and how his resentments and paranoia turned it into a tragic war at home, a war that America is still fighting a half century later. The heart of the series is an amazing collection of tape recordings we've unearthed and pieced together to tell this story in a fresh, riveting new way. Never before heard and often shocking conversations that put you in the room where it happens as history is made, along with my debriefings of some of the players and experts. By the way, like Studio 360's American Icons series, Nixon at War was underwritten by the National Endowment for the Humanities. So I hope you'll keep listening and enjoy what you hear. And then immediately subscribe to our whole Nixon at War series on this or any other podcast player. Thanks very much. I just start right at the top and fire some people. The best politician of all is Nixon. But boy, when you get in tight and close and he's under attack. President Nixon heard today the voice of the campus in a massive appeal. He's known as the madman theory. Make those North Vietnamese think that he was just crazy. Here was a fellow who seven years before was the biggest loser in American politics. <laughs> Astonishing. He was a textbook for how to damage our democracy. I have Dr. Kissinger calling you. Nixon was a paranoid. Everybody was told a different story. Mr. President, you are saving this country. I thought this is really what he means, and he's the president. It was a very intense time. From PRX, this is Nixon at War. It's a beautiful day in Washington, the cusp of spring and summer 1971. A Sunday, but Richard Nixon, pretty much all work and no play, is in his office at 8 in the morning. And he probably felt about as happy as Richard Nixon ever felt. Yesterday, he'd presided over the wedding of his older daughter, Tricia, right here at the White House. Already on the covers of Life and Time magazines. And this morning, the front page of the New York Times. Nice story, above the fold, with a big photo of him escorting her into the Rose Garden. Just past noon, the president phoned his top military aide. General Haig, sir. Deputy National Security Advisor Alexander Haig. Yes, sir. Hi, Al. What about the casualties last week? You got the figure yet? Uh, no, sir, but I think it's going to be quite low. Uh, mm -hmm. Casualties, meaning Americans killed and wounded in the Vietnam War. The horrible problem Nixon was elected to fix. Yeah, it should be less than 20, I would think, yeah. And things aren't going too badly. When he took office two and a half years ago, several hundred Americans every week were dying in Vietnam. And Nixon had gotten that number down to a few dozen. His gradual withdrawal of troops was proceeding. 
But none of that is Haig's concern today. Nothing else of interest in the world? Yes, sir, very significant, this goddamn New York Times expose of the most highly classified documents of the war. Oh, that, I see. I didn't read the story. Hold on. Right next to the coverage of Trisha's wedding, page one above the fold, the Times has this holy moly package of articles about the Vietnam War, drawn from a three-year-old classified Defense Department history. They're calling it the Pentagon Papers. And this foreign policy-obsessed president hasn't bothered to read it? Really? You mean that that was leaked out of the Pentagon? Sir, the whole study that was done for McNamara and then carried on after McNamara left by Clifford and the peaceniks over there. Peaceniks, in this case, those working under the previous Democratic defense secretaries, Robert McNamara and Clark Clifford. General Haig is upset. This is a devastating security breach of the greatest magnitude of anything I've oh, seen. Well, what, uh, what's being done about it then? I mean, I didn't... Uh, I did we know this was coming out? No, we did not, sir. Uh, yeah. Nixon reacts not to the substance of the leak, but only to the fact of it, the bastards who talk to the press. Now, I just start right at the top and fire some people. Whatever department it came out of, I'd fire the top guy. Yes, sir. Well, I'm sure it came from defense, and I'm sure it was stolen at, at the time of the turnover of the administration. Oh, it's two years old then. Almost three years old, in fact, which may be why Nixon doesn't seem all that concerned at first. Then, in the afternoon... Mr. President, I have Dr. Kissinger calling you. His national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, from out in L.A. Mr. President. Hi, Henry. How are things in California? Well, I just got there. Egg was very disturbed by that New York Times thing. I thought that... Mr. President, I think... Unconscionable damn thing for them to do. Unconscionable. Of course, it's uh, unconscionable on the part of the people that leaked it. Fortunately, according to Haig, it all relates to the two previous administrations. Is that correct? That is right. But my point is, if are any of the people there who participated in this thing who in leaking it? That's my point. Do we know? Still focused on the leakers. But Kissinger immediately changes the subject to the substance of the revelations and their possible political benefits. In public opinion, it actually, if anything, will help us a little bit because this is a gold mine of throwing how the previous administration got us in there. It just shows massive mismanagement of how we got there. And it pins it all on Kennedy and John. Nixon won the presidency as a tough-minded critic of the Democrats' bungled war. Like President Johnson before him, he insisted on peace with honor, which meant somehow quitting this huge war without looking like quitters. So from that point of view, it helped us. From the point of view of the relations with Hanoi, it hurts a little because it just shows a further weakening of resolve. On Nixon's watch, nearly 20,000 more young Americans had been killed in Vietnam. Public sentiment to pull out the remaining quarter million troops is growing, with Congress debating bills to make that happen now. And on that front, in June 71, Kissinger reassures him that the Pentagon Papers are no problem. No one reading this can then say that this president got us into trouble. I've read this stuff. We've come out pretty well in it. <laughs> but now Nixon starts fretting about files the peaceniks may have on him. I asked Haig about that, and he said, well, look, as far as the White House is concerned, we, we're pretty damn secure. On the other hand, of course, uh, it's on Laos and Cambodia. You, you can be sure all that's in some file. But, Mr. President, all the big things we've done in the White House, and those files will leave with you. Kissinger was a skillful Nixon whisperer. 
Don't worry, Mr. President. Not politically bad for you and your big things will stay secret. But Nixon's worries, triggered by the leaked Pentagon Papers, festered. By Thursday, four days later, the president has worked himself into a paranoid frenzy. We had nothing here, Mr. President. This recording of an Oval Office meeting with White House Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman and Kissinger is rough. Most of the conversation is cryptic, suggestive. But that earlier vague concern, what might they have on me, on us, now crystallizes around a specific secret file. The whole bombing hall file. A file about a U.S. bombing halt in Vietnam before Nixon was president. Houston swears to God there's a file on it at Brookings. A file at Brookings, the big old liberal Washington think tank. And Houston is 30-year-old White House aide Tom Charles Houston, a right-wing plotter mocked by colleagues as Secret Agent X-5, but not mocked by Nixon. I do remember Houston's plan. I wanted to implement it on a thievery basis. Houston's plan on a thievery basis, blow the safe, says the President of the United States to the White House Chief of Staff. It's one of the most remarkable moments on Nixon's tapes. Nixon historian Ken Hughes has spent years at the University of Virginia's Miller Center of Public Affairs sifting through the White House recordings. It's the only time that the president recorded himself ordering a break-in. And it's not a break-in at Watergate, where you'd expect. He actually orders his aides to break into the Brookings Institution, crack open the safe, and steal the report. And he's dead serious. A break-in at the think tank. Get those files. A year before the Watergate break-in, which he never explicitly ordered. And this wasn't a one-time outburst. Two weeks later, he's talking about it again, banging on his Oval Office desk. We are going to use any means. Is that clear? Did they get the Brookings Institute raided last night? Did they get the Brookings Institute raided last night? Get it done. I want it done. I want the Brookings Institute say, please, out. I took him very literally. I thought this is really what he, he means, and he's the president. Nixon aide Chuck Colson. When we left the Oval Office that day, I turned to Haldeman and I said, what are we supposed to do with this? Haldeman said, well, we've got to get somebody to do something about those Brookings papers. So in 1971, with a re-election campaign about to start, what dirt do his enemies have? What are these bombing halt secrets that have him in such a tizzy? I'm Kurt Anderson, and from PRX, this is Nixon at War. Episode 1, October Surprise. I'm just a writer. Novels and American histories, not any kind of expert on Vietnam or Richard Nixon. I thought I knew the story of Nixon's downfall. The Watergate break-in, the cover-up, exposed, busted, resignation, the end. But now, from reading and searching through remarkable archives of recording, one, listening two. to hours of interviews with the people in the room. This is the interview with Harry McPherson. Presidential phone calls. Senator Dirk, the president. Hello. And interviewing our own squad of expert historians and authors. I've come to a whole new understanding of the war and of the president who presided over its end. For instance, I always thought of the Vietnam War as a completely separate topic, a different disaster that happened to occur at the same time as all the misdeeds we know as Watergate. 
But in fact, the two stories are deeply intertwined. The true story, the bigger, deeper, underlying backstory, the untold stories, and the monumentally tragic consequences of Nixon's paranoia and lying and ruthlessness all have their roots in the Vietnam War. The heart of Nixon at war is the second half of the U.S. shooting war in Vietnam, a war in which 58,000 Americans and as many as 3 million Vietnamese were killed. But it's also about the collateral Cold Wars Nixon fought here in America against protesters and the press and the Washington establishment, as well as his battles with his own psychological demons. But back to our story. In 1971, exactly what were the secrets about his Vietnam War misbehavior that Nixon was so freaked out might get leaked? Put another way, what was the first domino in the chain that led to his eventual downfall? For that, we need to turn back the dial three years. Johnson, LBJ, is president. It's the beginning of election year, 1968, first Friday in February. And like every evening, a huge majority of Americans watching TV, 50 million or more, are tuned in to one of the three half-hour network news shows. In color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And on that Groundhog Day, they might have watched Richard Nixon officially launch his second presidential campaign. I will be the strongest candidate, and I believe I can beat Lyndon Johnson. But what Americans watching the news that day remember was... The Oriental New Year, and it's a new war the communists' massive Tet Offensive. The Viet Cong simultaneously attacked just about every major city and town in South Vietnam. In one day, they increased the scope of the war dramatically. The communists actually lost most of the battles of Tet, but the scale and scope and shock started winning them the war, strategically, politically. More than half a million American servicemen were now deployed in Vietnam, and every week, hundreds of them were killed. And every week, another 6,000 young Americans were drafted into the Army. At the end of that month, I was 13, sitting there in the TV room as usual with my family. We watched Mr. Objective CBS Evening News anchor Walter Cronkite, freshly back from the war, deliver his special primetime report that ended with this stunning plain truth. It is increasingly clear to this report that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. American public opinion started shifting against the war in Vietnam, including mine, quickly. As I finished eighth grade, I turned from this eager beaver Republican campaign volunteer with a Nixon's the One poster on my wall to a pot-smoking, anti-war Abby Hoffman fan. One Sunday night, my new favorite TV show, The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, was preempted so that President Johnson could talk about the war. Good evening, my fellow Americans. Tonight I want to speak to you of peace in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. He announced that he was cutting back the bombing and reiterated that he was open to peace talks. But that speech was remembered for what he announced about his own political plans. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. 
That night, Johnson took a late-night phone call in his White House bedroom from one of the top candidates for the Republican presidential nomination, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. Hi, Nelson. <laughs> Rocky told the president that not running for re-election was the fabulous act of a great patriot. The president didn't disagree. When I wind up, I want to wind up with the thing that worked out. And I've got nothing to do now except try to do the big job. The big job, meaning the war on its way to resolution. For his first two years in office, Johnson was the civil rights president the war on poverty and great society president. But now he'd become the goddamn Vietnam War president. He was desperate to be done with it and salvage his reputation. Gene, how are you? Pretty good. To Senator Eugene McCarthy, now running against him for the Democratic nomination as the peace candidate, LBJ had confessed two years earlier. I know we ought to be there, but I can't get out. I just can't be the architect of uh, surrender. I'm willing to do nearly anything a human can do if I can do it with any honor at all. Definitely, by 1968, he wasn't after military victory, but some kind of face-saving negotiated withdrawal. And then, a couple of days after his big speech, a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel. The North Vietnamese agree for the first time to begin peace negotiations immediately with the Americans in Paris. So... Unbowed communist revolutionaries sitting down in the capital of their former colonial occupier with the capitalist superpower. In early May 1968, as it happened, the very moment France erupts in spectacular, historic, nationwide anti-American, anti-war protests and strikes and riots by millions of students and workers. The mob was incensed by the sight of riot police. Sanity and social responsibility were forgotten. In a work of fiction, in a movie, it'd be totally implausible. In fact, the North Vietnamese were really just going through the motions of peace talks in Paris. More than a quarter century into their war against the French and now the Americans, their goal was victory, period. The leadership of North Vietnam did not trust negotiations with the United States. Columbia University historian Hang Nguyen. They never believed in going anywhere to talk about peace. Um, it was always just a way to maintain the Saigon government and keep the country divided. And if the party leadership sought to liberate the South and reunify the country through communist auspices, nothing the Americans would do short of withdrawing their support from Saigon would be acceptable. Cut to later that summer. Miami Beach, the 1968 Republican Convention. Richard Nixon's early political career had gone like gangbusters in the 1950s. Senator at 37, vice president at 40, presidential nominee at 47. But after the quick rise came a quick fall. In 1960, I had suffered a shattering defeat in the presidential campaign. Against John F. Kennedy. It was no comfort that it was the closest election in history. Two years later, I suffered another defeat that was even more shattering because the election was for a lesser office, governor of California. And that second loss to a Democrat who wasn't even younger or handsome or charismatic. But I have news for you. This time there's a difference. This time we're going to win. Wisconsin is proud to cast its 30 votes for the nominee of this convention, Richard M. Nixon. 
It's Nixon's comeback moment. Well, that does it. There it is. Nixon is the nominee. And with accelerating rebellion and disorder and death in the U.S., as well as Vietnam, he had his last chance. His nomination speech depicted American carnage. As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. Did American boys die in Normandy and Korea and in Valley Forge for this? Listen to the answer to those questions. It is another voice. It is a quiet voice in the tumult of the shouting. It is the voice of the great majority of Americans, the forgotten Americans, the non-shouters, the non-demonstrators. This would become Nixon's domestic political pitch, that he shared normal Americans' fear and loathing of the rioters and hippies and anti-war protesters, even though he was also campaigning as the person best suited to end the war. When the strongest nation in the world can be tied down for four years in a war in Vietnam with no end in sight, when the nation with the greatest tradition of the rule of law is plagued by unprecedented lawlessness, when a nation has been known for a century for equality of opportunity is torn by unprecedented racial violence, then it's time for new leadership for the United States of America. His law and order pitch was all about things no president can suddenly fix. Hippies, radicals, rioters. But the war? That was entirely Washington's doing. And a president actually could end it soon. We all hope in this room that there's a chance that current negotiations may bring an honorable end to that war. And we will say nothing during this campaign that might destroy that chance. Notice that. The Republican nominee going out of his way three months before the election to promise that, of course, he wished the Democratic president the best possible luck making peace. But... If the war is not ended, when the people choose in November, the choice will be clear. Here it is. For four years, this administration has had at its disposal the greatest military and economic advantage that one nation has ever had over another in a war in history. Never has so much military and economic and diplomatic power been used so ineffectively. And I pledge to you tonight that the first priority foreign policy objective of our next administration will to be bring an honorable end to the war in Vietnam. Hello, Mr. President. How are you? That same day, the president, who'd spent the last four years using so much power so ineffectively, phones Nixon in Miami from the Texas White House, his ranch near Johnson City. They'd known each other for two decades. Well, I'm just fine to have that any sleep, but you know how that is. I sure do, and I'll give you my congratulations and my sympathy. (laughs) Boy, I tell you, isn't that the truth? And that was it for the small talk. Vietnam was the president's agenda, the war possible peace, over which Johnson would continue as commander-in-chief for five more months. I want to try to play this thing as uh, much uh, in the national interest as is humanly possible and as fair as possible. I believe that your conduct has been uh, uh, very responsible. We're both supposed to be great political animals, but we both want to do what's best for our country. And I think it's awfully important dealing with these comments for the next four months for us to be... uh, completely informed with the same facts, and then we can whatever our judgment dictates. Good deal. 
In fact, as far as the war in Vietnam goes, Richard Nixon is focused on the best interests of Richard Nixon and what's best for his presidential campaign. Richard Nixon had lived in California and Washington, D.C. But then, in the early 1960s, middle-aged Mr. Middle America up and moves to New York City. He had a love-hate relationship with what he thought of as the East Coast establishment. He hated it, but he also wanted to make it there. Biographer Evan Thomas, the author of Being Nixon. He thought it was the center of the universe, even as he loathed it. He thought the center of the universe was the Upper East Side, but also the place that you had to, where you had to make it and, and show your stuff. So he knew that to please the establishment, that you have to pay court to network executives and people who work for the New York Times. And he joined the Metropolitan Club. It wasn't one of the best clubs, but it was the club that would take him. A block from his club and his apartment was the fancy Pierre Hotel, where he kept an office while running for president. And there, in July 1968... Nixon holds this extremely secret meeting. Historian Ken Hughes. So secret that he doesn't even inform his Secret Service detail that it is taking place. And the only people present are Nixon, his campaign chairman John Mitchell, Bui Ziam, the South Vietnamese ambassador to the United States, and Anna Chenault, whom Nixon knows, and Chenault introduces Nixon and Ambassador Ziam for the first time. Anna Chenault, not famous nowadays, but that day she became one of the key pieces in an epic 3D chess game of wartime presidential politics and diplomacy. At this meeting, Nixon said to the dragon lady, as she was called, you are to be my personal representative to the South Vietnamese government, meaning my back channel to the Chu government. Now, this is a secret designation. No one outside the room knows that when Anna Chenault speaks to the South Vietnamese, she can speak for Richard Nixon. Anna Chenault. She could really be the subject of her own podcast. At age 19 in China during World War II, I got a job with the Central News Agency as the first woman reporter. I met my late husband, General Chenault, in 1944. The U.S. Air Force general leading the famous Flying Tiger squadrons against the Japanese. So one thing led to another. He was courting me, and uh, finally we got married. They marry, the communists take over, the Chenaults move to America, start a cargo airline. We were only married for 10 years, and then he died of cancer. So in 1968, she's this rich, young, glamorous Washington widow living at the Watergate. Well-connected, anti-communist political activist and a Vietnam War hawk. Every time we stop the bombing, only give the other side the opportunity to rebuild their military installation. More of our men will have to be sacrificed. The sooner we win this war, the better off we will be. Not end this war, win it. In 1968, she flew to Saigon to meet with President Nguyen Van Thieu. And then, through the November election, she'd stay in close touch with the top rungs of the Vietnamese government and the Nixon campaign. And, possibly, change history. Six weeks later, at the end of August, came the infamous Democratic Convention in Chicago. The new leader of the anti-war left, Bobby Kennedy, had been assassinated in June. It was 1968, 
America in the throes of radical cultural change. So, of course, thousands of young people showed up in Chicago to protest against the war and the establishment. Inside the old International Amphitheater, the convention had its own milder protests and ruckuses, but the so-called happy warrior was having none of it. My fellow Democrats, I proudly accept the nomination of our party. Hubert H. Humphrey was an old-school liberal who entered the Senate the same time as Lyndon Johnson. As his vice president, he'd urged him long ago to cut losses and get out of Vietnam. But now he still wouldn't definitively separate himself from the unpopular president and his war. What we are doing is in the tradition of Lyndon B. Johnson, who rallied a grief-stricken nation. And in the space... And in the space of five years since that tragic moment, President Johnson has accomplished more of the unfinished business of America than any of his modern predecessors. And tonight to you, Mr. President, I say thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Meanwhile, outside, Chicago police went on a rampage against the anti-war protesters, tear-gassing and beating them bloody by the score on TV. It was a disaster at the convention. The nominee's longtime major domo, William Cannell. The confrontation with the demonstrators and the, and the Chicago police over Vietnam politically was a terrible disaster. Humphrey was dogged from that day demonstrations everywhere he went. When he spoke anywhere, there was always demonstrators out there, and there were always kids. And they were very skillful, and the television cameras would go over and pick him up. So that the gestalt that the American people had about Humphrey was Humphrey and those damn loud kids and banners and so on, and inability to be in control. The damn loud kids on his party's left and Nixon on his right were both against Humphrey on the war. Politically, the worst of both worlds. But as the election really gets going, Nixon is 45% to 29% ahead. With the white supremacist third-party candidate George Wallace set to win some Democratic southern states, the Republican nominee now looked like the sure winner. But Nixon was never complacent, especially given how his last presidential campaign ended. Nixon comes out of the 1960 campaign. Biographer John Farrell. Believing that... Jack Kennedy, who had been his friend when he was vice president and Kennedy was in the Senate, had cheated and stolen the election from him in Chicago and in Texas. So all this bitterness leaves him seething. So in his final grab for the brass ring, what would he do to make sure he didn't lose again? That is, what wouldn't he do? There's no doubt about it. Yes, Nixon's the one to go. Richard Nixon was not born for retail politics. Charmless, uninspiring, the most un-Californian Californian ever. He was not a natural politician. He was uncomfortable, uneasy, paranoid. Nixon biographer Evan Thomas. And so he had to compensate for it. He'd always arrive late so that he, to command presence. One of his tricks was to walk into a room and immediately start playing the piano so that he wouldn't have to make small talk. In other words, he would do whatever was necessary such as appearing on the number one TV show, Laughing, in the fall of 1968. Suck it to me? Concerning the war, just two years earlier, on his way back from Saigon, Nixon had essentially declared victory for the U.S. There's no question now as to the outcome in Vietnam. The 
North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong are not going to succeed. The question now is how long it's going to take. But now his posture was neither hawk, looking to win militarily, nor dove, who'd bug out. Nixon had a familiar catchphrase. Let me make one thing very clear. But about Vietnam, he was authoritatively vague. And as the race began, that strategy was definitely working for him. By 1968, the war was routinely referred to as a quagmire. And Nixon's success now depended on that quagmire continuing, at least through the first Tuesday in November. For three years, the U.S. had dropped 1,000 tons of bombs every day on North Vietnam, a country the size of New York State. And getting that stopped was Hanoi's one unbudging condition for going forward seriously with peace talks. Johnson didn't want to halt the bombing unilaterally. He wanted the North Vietnamese to agree to also cut back on their attacks in South Vietnam. But his vice president wasn't feeling so steadfast. His aide, Bill Connell, accompanied him on the campaign trail. Every single time that Humphrey would have a press conference, be it in Dubuque, Iowa, or New York City, the first question was always Vietnam. And the second question was Vietnam, and the third question was Vietnam. He couldn't get on the attack. Every stop was just a disaster. All through September, the Gallup poll still had Nixon ahead by 15 points. Humphrey decided he had to move publicly toward the peace now side. We went out there and started drafting a statement which would indicate Humphrey's intention to do something drastic if he were president in terms of changing the direction of the war and finding a peaceful solution. There was a, an, almost an all-night session, and it rewrote, rewrote, argued, argued. That was it. Bang. Humphrey taped his 20-minute speech to be broadcast on September 30th, five weeks before the election. And then, just before it aired, phoned LBJ with a heads-up. Mr. President. Hi. How are you this evening? Fine. Say, I'm going to be on your TV in about five or six minutes. All right, I'll turn it on. On NBC, and I uh, I just thought I, I should have called you a little earlier. They had me taping here all day, and I've been about half dead. The vice president soft-pedaled what he was about to do, quoting from his speech. Then let me make clear first what I would not do. I would not undertake a unilateral withdrawal. Peace would not be served by weakness or withdrawal, and I make that very clear. Then Humphrey read the president his key line. As president, I would be willing to stop the bombing of the North as an acceptable risk for peace, because I believe it could lead to success in the negotiations in a shorter war. Now, does that mean without any... No, now, wait a minute. This would be the best protection of our troops. Except in the version he'd already recorded, he hadn't included that crucial softening phrase, willing to. Instead, on TV that night, he told America, As president, I would stop the bombing of the North as an acceptable risk for peace. Hubert Humphrey would stop the bombing, period, all but preemptively granting the communists' big demand. Did you get the sense that Johnson felt more in sync on Vietnam with Nixon than Humphrey? Yes. Tom Johnson, LBJ's ever-present young aide-de-camp. He felt that Nixon's policy toward Vietnam was stronger, where Vice President Humphrey had become softer, had become more of a dove. And with Humphrey's new dovish left turn on the bombing halt, Nixon felt threatened. Nixon had his antenna up. He was suspicious. Biographer John Farrell. 
all these things came together in Nixon's mind and drove him really to a sense of acute paranoia. Here he thought he had this election cinched, and now it was dribbling away, and not just dribbling away, but they were going to cheat him out of it with this phony bombing halt. So that day in the Nixon-Johnson chess game, it was Nixon's move. He phoned the White House, giving the president more of a heads-up about his imminent TV appearance than LBJ's own vice president had provided. Next morning, Johnson heard from Senator Everett Dirksen, the Washington Republican, the Senate Minority Leader. Are you at liberty to make some comment on Hubert's speech last night? I think uh, a literal interpretation would show there's no great difference in it and our present policy. Uh, I think his intention is to try to do that and still leave the impression that there is. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. So uh, here is our present policy. We're ready, anxious, willing, eager to stop the bombing, just as we're eager to stop the war. Yeah. But we just can't stop one side of it. The other side's got to stop something, too. We found out that when we stop and they don't stop, it kills more men. Yeah. So we have said to them, if we did stop the bombing, what would you do? Yeah. They are now considering that. They have not given us a firm answer. Yeah. So Johnson has revealed to his main Republican go-between something big, that a U.S. bombing halt was on the table, and North Vietnam was considering a deal. But they refuse to have anything to do with this government that's elected and has a million-man army that's doing a lot of the fighting. So that is a second consideration. That they must talk to the... GVN. The GVN, our allies, the government of South Vietnam. And if they didn't get to attend the peace talks, if they felt disrespected? Now, if this group walked out from under us, we'd really be left. And the thing that both Bunker and Abrams, the two best men we have, are more concerned about than anything else, is something that would make them distrust us and make them think we'd sell them out. Negotiations were at a delicate point. And Johnson didn't want his vice president or Nixon screwing them up. The president knew his inside dope about the peace talks would go straight to Nixon. Did he not also imagine that Nixon might use that information to help himself get elected? The question of a a bombing halt was a question very much at the front of Nixon's mind during the campaign. Bob Haldeman was chief of staff for the campaign. There was great concern within the campaign organization and on Nixon's part himself that Johnson was planning to pull a trick out of the hat. I mean, there were all kinds of rumor-type things, you know, as to what Johnson was up to. All I knew was that there was a Harvard professor who had some ties to the Johnson administration and to Rockefeller who was concerned about what Johnson was doing. A super-ambitious 44-year-old government professor named Henry Kissinger. As a teenager, Kissinger had escaped Nazi Germany, then returned as an Army intelligence operative during the war and now, in the summer of 68, was back in Europe advising the U.S. peace negotiators. And, once again, working as an intelligence operative, this time for Richard Nixon's campaign. Henry Kissinger volunteered information to us through a a spy he had, former student that he had in the Paris peace talks. Richard Allen, Nixon's foreign policy advisor. He called me from payphones, and we spoke in German. And he offloaded uh, mostly every night what had happened that day in Paris. In late September, the Nixon spy Kissinger, speaking from Paris in German in order to, I don't know, be more spy-like, informed Allen and the Nixonites of a secret breakthrough in the peace talks. 
of the, quote, better-than-even chance Johnson will order a bombing halt in October. Suddenly, it seemed as if the Democratic administration's peace talks were actually leading toward peace. October surprise wasn't yet an idiom in American presidential politics. But with Humphrey morphing into a peace candidate and catching up in the polls, Richard Nixon knew this October surprise could cost him the presidency. It was time to activate the agent he called the Dragon Lady. And then along came the Chenault affair, or the Chenault saga. Anna Chenault, in an interview not long before she died in 2018 at age 92. You also became involved in politics, correct? Yes. <laughs> How did that happen? <sighs> long story. I'm Kurt Anderson, and from PRX, this has been the first episode of Nixon at War. Next episode, Madame Chenault. She's young and attractive. I mean, she's a pretty good-looking girl. And she's around town. Seems to be kind of the go-between. Thanks very much for listening. I'm the writer and a co-producer of this series. The executive producer is Steve Atlas. The series producer is Emma Wetherill. Our mix engineer is Robin Wise. And the producer and researcher is Caitlin Raffey. Our original music is by Mason Daring, with additional music by Tim Dickinson. To find out more, visit our website, nixonatwar.org. And if you like what you've heard, please give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others find us as well. Nixon at War has been made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Democracy demands wisdom. <laughs>